The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Awesome. Well, good morning. How are you guys? Good. It's good to see you. Hey, before we jump in this morning, I want to take a minute just to say two things to you. One, I get the privilege of leading worship every week, and, and so often Matt does a great job of just honoring the band and telling us what a great job we are and telling you how blessed you are to have us. So there's not a lot of people in our church that get the opportunity to step up and, and talk about Matt. And I just want to say, this week I studied. Studying's a, a tough gig, and preaching is a tough gig, and Matt does such a faithful job of walking us through God's word week by week. And I just want to give him a minute. I want to honor him for a minute and say thank you to Pastor Matt for how he preaches. And then... Uh, Secondly, I just wanted to say there are a group of people um, called our production team that show up here week after week faithfully to serve you way more than you recognize so that we can come in here and focus our worship on Jesus without being distracted. They set up the stage and everything you see in here, and it's a lot of work because this is a portable church. And I just want to honor our production team and say thank you together to them for what they do. They'll be here long after you guys go home tearing down, and they're the first year, so they're, you're, you, they're my heroes. Um, Uh, Let's look at our text this morning, and then we'll pray. John 10, we're going to start in verse 10. John 10, 10, and we'll go through verse 13. These are the words of Jesus. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for how your word uh, encouraged me this week, how it always is faithful and it always accomplishes what you set forth for it in its purpose. I pray the encouragement you've given me and the imagery you've painted for us, that you're a shepherd that leads us and cares for us loves us, provides for us, protects us, God. Would you let that encourage us this morning? Would you let it push us forward and draw us into you? It's in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the fourth week of the series called I Am, and this week we talk about Jesus as the good shepherd. This has been a great series, and all we're simply, the reason we chose to walk through these seven I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John is simple. We want to look at Jesus through his own words. We want to look at what Jesus had to say about himself and who he is, and we believe that he will be faithful to do what he says he will do when he's lifted high in a clear fashion, and he'll draw us to himself. He'll enlighten our hearts and open the eyes of our hearts, Ephesians 1.18 says, to see and know the hope he has called us to. And so we want to get Jesus as high on the throne as we can get him this morning. Uh, Matt and I moved to California the same week, January of 2015, to plant this church, Story City Church, together. Matt came from Atlanta. I came from Chicago. We were both at really big churches before this. And we got to LA, and when we got on the ground here, we realized we don't have a church. <laughs> like It's the first time in either of our lives in a long time we didn't have a church to go to. So what we decided to do, because we're here to start a church, is just kind of survey the landscape, go see what churches were in town. So Sunday by Sunday, we'd take our two families we go to different churches all over L.A., saw a lot of great churches. And before I say what I'm about to say, I want to uh, put a caveat on it, that our posture at this church is, is wherever there's a gospel church that's a proclaiming Jesus, we want to lift them up and thank them. And, uh, and, and I believe the purpose of the pulpit is to proclaim the gospel and not to critique other churches. So don't hear this as a critique of other churches, but more as a way to make a different point. Um, as we started going to a lot of different churches 
in the Los Angeles area, I started noticing a common thread. If you would, a tapestry, and there's a common thread wove through it. And, and it kind of, you don't notice it at first. There's kind of an ethos, uh, a way of doing church here that kind of started to stand out to me um, more and more. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to the mall, the first time you ever walked past an Abercrombie, you're like walking past it, and you're like, whoa, wall of perfume. Where would that come from? How much perfume have they sprayed on their clothing? And, and then and you hit by it, and then like the next time you go to the mall, you're like 300 yards away, and you can smell, oh, there's an Abercrombie up there. And the next time you go to the mall, you're getting out of your car, and you're like, there's an Abercrombie in this mall. <laughs> I started to get more and more sensitive to this kind of, this posture that a lot of churches were taking. And here, here's what I think it is. Um, there's, there's a posture in L.A. that um, Jesus Christ, the eternal God of glory, is kind of treated in a way, uh, like kind of like the the nerdy kid at the lunch table or the new kid who's new from out of town. And, and we want Jesus to, we want you to like Jesus. We want Jesus to fit in. So we kind of dress Jesus up in the right kind of clothes. Maybe we give him some Yeezys and a thick-brimmed hat. And, uh, and we set Jesus up for punchlines and, and so, that, so that he'll be palatable to this culture, so that, so, that, so that Jesus can fit in in L.A. and that people will like him and want our Jesus. He can, he can be cool. And, and that kind of, you know, that's just not... What Je- Jesus isn't interested in fitting in. I want to say that. Jesus could care less if he fits into our culture here. What is underneath this desire that we would shave off certain parts of Jesus and present other parts and push him forward? Here's what it is. It's this belief that Jesus isn't palatable to this culture, so we have to change him. We need to bend Jesus to fit what we think is good and right and worthy and acceptable. But I want to say this. That's not the Jesus in the Bible. The Jesus in the Bible is who says, you must bend to me. Like, I set the standard, I am who I am, I will not change. If you don't change to me, you suffer for it. And so all we want to do with this church is get the full Jesus that the Bible preaches, the full message of Christ, as high as we can get it. Week after week, we want to lift Jesus up because he tells us in John chapter 12 that when he's lifted up, he will draw men to himself. That's what he does when we lift Jesus up, when we just show him for who he is, when we don't try to change him or morph him, we just say, this is who Jesus is, like it or not, Jesus will draw him into himself. And in John chapter 12, when he's speaking about that, Jesus is actually talking about going to the cross. It's literal. He's saying, when I go to the cross and am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And so specifically, what does Story City Church exist to do? Why did we start this church? We started it so that week by week, to the point of redundancy and driving you nuts, we are going to week after week lift up Christ crucified for sinners, Jesus in the place of sinners. He takes our burdens. We take his freedom. Week after week, we're going to present this gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. And here's the reality. 1 Corinthians 1.18 would tell us that when this gospel is presented, that we're sinners in need of grace. And Jesus came and took our place, and God poured out all his just wrath towards sin on Christ so that we could go free and get Christ's righteousness and be robed in it forever in honor. That gospel, that message as a reality that it actually happened, there's going to be people that hear that and think it's foolishness. That's what 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us. There's going to be people that laugh at people who believe that. And we can't change that by changing Jesus. That's just the reality. There are going to be people that laugh at Christianity, that laugh at people that would center their life around Christ. But there's also going to be people, according to 1 Corinthians 18, who hear that and they hear the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus stirs in their heart the reality of what he has done, of the price he paid, of the mystery of the incarnation, of the truth of his life in our place and his, his life on our behalf and his death in our place and a relationship is birthed that becomes the radical center of our lives. 
And that's the reality of what the gospel does. It divides, but some will come and some will be put off by the gospel. From the very beginning, Jesus, his entire ministry, he was no stranger to persecution. Jesus was no stranger to not being liked. In fact, in our text today, in John chapter 10, Jesus is being persecuted. The context which his words fit into is him being persecuted by the religious leaders of the day called Pharisees. These were shepherds. These were the shepherds of Israel that he's speaking to. In this, they're, the, they're the caretakers of Israel. And so I want us to look at the context of Jesus' words today and the context in which Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Who's he talking to? We get that context is important. We, we are, this room is full of people that make movies for a living. Raise your hand if you make movies for a living on some way or another. There are a lot of people in here that love narrative, that love story, and we understand that in story, nothing's more important than context. Nothing's more important than understanding why we're saying what we're saying. And so I want to paint a picture for you this morning. Um, I want to try a few first, though, and see if, if, when I say a few lines from these movies, if the context of the movie just pops into your head. And you can just see it, okay? I want to try a few. And you can literally yell out the answers here. Tell me if you know. No, I'll try a few quotes here. Um, I, I debated all week on if I was actually going to try the accent on this one or not. Because <laughs> I'm terrible at accents. I'm going to try it, though. Mama always said life was like a box of chocolates. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> Forrest Gump, thank you. One of my all-time favorite movies. Can you see it? Can you see who he's talking to? I'll try this one on. You're killing me, Smalls. Sandlot. Thank you. Try this one. This is my favorite one. Are you crying? There's no crying in baseball. League of Their Own. Great movie. Last one. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Dead Poet Society. One of my favorite movies. John Keating. Yes. A wise man. Oh, captain, my captain. But can you see it? Can you see the context? See, we know. Those, those, we love those lines. We've memorized those lines because they were said to certain people in the context of a story. And that's true of our text today. Jesus' words, Jesus calling himself the good shepherd, he was talking to real people for real reasons. And he wanted something to be understood in his place and time. And we can pull that out of its context and understand its implications for us today. And so I want to try to paint that. So try to picture this. I want to draw the, the picture, paint the movie scene for you of Jesus calling himself the good shepherd, of who he's talking to. And I think that'll help us get to the bottom of why these words are so rich and meaningful. So we're in John 10, but if we trace back just two chapters to John chapter 8, we find Jesus in a confrontation with the Pharisees, these, these religious leaders, the religious elite, these holy men. And they have already declared their hatred for Jesus. He's come on the scene declared something that they don't like. They've declared their hatred and decided to take their stand against Jesus. And they're in a confrontation. And in John 8, 44, Jesus turns the, he takes the dial of the confrontation and he turns it way up to 11. Um, another reference to a movie, if anyone in here. Sorry, I digress. He takes, the, he takes the temperature of the confrontation and he turns it all the way up. By in John 8, 44, he looks the Pharisees in the face and he says, your father is Satan and he's a liar and a murderer. And so you're liars and murderers. Now, just a little note. If, you, if you're ever in a theological debate with someone or just a conflict in general, if you want to just really end the relationship, a good way to do that is just to tell them they're of Satan, right? Like, like that, was a, that, was a, that was a strong note for Jesus to land on with these Pharisees, right? That, was, that, that turned the temperature up. So already they hate him, and he's going to look at me and tells them the truth. He says, you're of your father, Satan. You think you're shepherds of Israel, but you're not. You're not. 
And then in John 9, they actually at the end of John 8, keep with the movie scene, at the end of John 8, they pick up stones to try to kill Jesus, it says. It says they're, they want, they're so mad they want to literally stone him, kill him, but Jesus escapes. And as he's leaving the synagogue, there's a blind man sitting by the gate that would be known by all the people. The Bible says he was born blind, and he's sitting at the gate, and Jesus' disciples tap Jesus on the shoulder as he's leaving. They say, Who's, whose fault is it that that guy's blind, Jesus? And Jesus looks at his disciples and he said, no one's fault. This guy was born blind so that the glory of God can be demonstrated. And he's about to show why. Because just Jesus looks at this man and the Bible tells us that he heals him. This man born blind, Jesus gives him sight as he's fleeing these Pharisees. He gives the man back his sight. And finally, the, the, the Pharisees kind of have caught up at this point. So, so they've, they've, they've come to kill, but now they're slowed down because Jesus has healed this blind man. And they look at this blind man. And rather than their hearts softening for a moment and going, how could this Jesus heal this blind man unless he's the Messiah? They don't do that. What they decide to do is approach the blind man and his family, and they say, do you think Jesus is the Messiah? Do you think he's the good shepherd? Do you think this is the one? And, they, and this man answers yes, essentially. He says, yes, I, I, I do. And what they do we're told in, in, in John 9, 22, that there was a law established already that anybody that declared Jesus the Messiah, the Pharisees had created a law that they must be thrown out of the synagogue. We know this because the parents of this guy born blind actually dropped their guard to the fear of man, won't confess Jesus the Messiah. So they, they we're told they'll stay. But this man does. And so they throw Jesus out of the synagogue. And Jesus, at this point, has had enough. This is, what, this is what John, the authorial intent, what John wants us to see in John 8, 9, and 10 as we lead up to this conversation is this. These blind guides, these false shepherds, they're way far gone, like they are past saving. Jesus just healed a blind man, and rather than their hearts being softed, they're throwing people out of the synagogue for confessing Jesus. These religious leaders, the one they've been living to point to, Jesus has arrived, and they're so threatened by his threat to their power, their position, their wealth, their spiritual influence that they hate Jesus and want to kill him. And he looks at them and he says, you know what? You're false shepherds. You care nothing for the sheep. You only care for your position. You only care for your wealth. You only care for spiritual power. But I, so this is kind of like Jesus form of smack talk. Right? Like this, this conversation, like in 2017 or 19, it's happening in the Twitter thread, like 10 comments down. Like Jesus is just like, I'm dropping heat right now. And he's like, but I'm the good shepherd. You're false shepherds. You are interested in getting something from the sheep, the spiritual authority and power and place they give you. I come, I've given away all my power. I've given away all my position. I've given away all my wealth just by coming to earth as the good shepherd, and I come to give my life for the sheep. That's what makes me good. That's what makes me the shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. That's the picture we need to have in our mind as these words are said today. What makes Jesus the good shepherd? That he lays down his life for the sheep in a world where all the shepherds are looking to get their own. So let's look at our text. Verse 10. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he says, you come to kill, you come to steal, you come to destroy. All thieves do, the enemy does. But I've come that they will have life and have it to the full. I came to give my sheep life and life to the full. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come to earth? He just told us, lock this away. He came to give you and me life. 
He came to give his sheep life and life to the full. Matt preached on this last week, and I thought it was so good, I wanted to reiterate it. He, he said last week, he made the point, you will experience God's fullness to the degree that you trust his intentions. You will experience God's fullness to the degree that you trust God's intentions. That's what Jesus is saying here. My intentions for you are good. My intentions are to bless. My intentions are to give life. We need to memorize this verse. Underline that verse. Highlight that verse. Memorize that verse. Lock it away. It's important that you do. And I want to give two reasons why we need to lock this promise away. The first has to do with the strength of our faith. The second has to do with the strength of our obedience. Here's the reality this morning. Your faith will not survive if you don't lock this promise away. Because every follower of Jesus will face seasons where it is hard to reconcile the goodness of God with their external circumstances. Walk with Jesus long enough. You will experience seasons where it is hard to reconcile the goodness of God who said he comes to give abundance life with external circumstances. See, the same God that said, I came to give them life and life to the full, also said, in this life you will have troubles. He promised that. Troubles are to be expected. Trials are to be expected. If we look at Matthew 7, Jesus tells a parable in verse 24 about two men and, one, and a storm's coming and one of the men is a wise builder and, and the Bible tells us that he built his house on the rock, which is Jesus. And he said that when the storm came and the waves crashed and the floods rose, that house survived. But one man, the other man, he, he built his house on sand. And when the storm came, his house was great was the fall of that house, it says. Now, we, we've heard that if you're familiar with church, and, and the takeaway we usually get is build your house on the rock. Build your house on Christ, and that is a good takeaway. Amen. But what I want us to see this morning is this. Even the man that built his house on the rock faced the storm. The flood still came for both men. Living your life in line in obedience with Jesus does not promise you a cushy life with no trials. Rather, Jesus' own words where you will have trials in this life. You will have troubles. And if you don't have this promise locked away and you don't trust it, that I have come to give you abundant life and life to the full, when those trials come, your faith will waver. So lock this away. The promise of God is not that as a Christian you will not suffer. The promise of God is that when you do suffer, your suffering through the grace of God and his faithfulness to you will be used to make you more like Jesus. Your suffering will become a tool, a furnace that refines you like gold to be more like Jesus. And guess what? Being more like Jesus is abundant life. Being near to Jesus is abundant life, not based in circumstances that are fleeting. So our faith needs to take this promise. Secondly, our obedience our obedience will waver if we do not lock this promise away. And here's why. If we don't believe with everything in us and trust deeply that God, everything he brings into our life, every command that he gives is meant to drive us as his sheep towards abundant life. If we don't trust that, there are going to be times where obedience is easy. And God says, I want you to go this way. Take a step in this direction. Follow me. And that's easy. It's, it's not costly. So you say, okay, Jesus, I'll go with you. But there will come times when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And a step of obedience, Jesus says, go this way. And you say, I really, really, really don't want to go that way, God. I do not want to lay that down. I do not want to walk away from that. Do you know how much comfort I'm getting from that? Do you know how much significance I'm getting from that? Do you know how much meaning and purpose? I can't picture my life without it, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Everything I ask of you, 
even when it's counterintuitive, is for your good to lead you to abundant full life in me and knowing me and experiencing me. Lock this promise away. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Meaning we open our eyes. We look at it and we go, that seems like the path to happiness. That seems like the path to flourishing, to thriving. And Jesus says, its end is death. So if we flip that promise, that proverb on its head, there's a way that seems wrong to a man. We look at it and we go, I do not want to go that way. Pain, suffering, hardship, heartache. No, there's a way that seems wrong to a man, but in the end, it leads to life. And that's the way of Jesus. It's the way that Jesus modeled for us when he left glory behind, laid aside his glory, humbled himself, died on the cross on our behalf. He modeled it for us. You need to lock that promise away that the abundant life Jesus comes to bring is a guarantee. This is rest. I mean, I will be honest with you. I wrestle with this. I'm, I can preach this because I've lived it. I've experienced it. I've experienced the struggle. I, tr- I struggle with you to trust these promises. C.S. Lewis had an incredible quote on how God is about abundant life. That's what he's about. It's in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Um, and what you need to understand if you don't know this about the screw tape letters is Lewis is writing the entire book from the perspective of a senior demon who is trying to write to a junior demon about how to tempt humans. So the words are the words of a demon in this. It's, it's Lewis writing as a demon. So you need to understand, I'm going to read this quote, and this is a demon writing about God. He says this. All those fasts and... Wait, I'm sorry. starting off. He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, or only like foam on the seashore. Out at his sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. He's vulgar, Wormwood. Wormwood's the junior demon. He has a bourgeois mind. He's filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. We fight under a cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. I love that quote. And a couple things I want to point out. Two things. First, I want us to see this. We have an adversary named Satan. He's real. He wants to warp our view of God, warp our view of ourself. He's a liar. That's his nature. And the enemy's MO, his modus operandi, what he is about, he wants to make us believe that God is ultimately trying to take good things from us and make us suffer. Why? Because if we believe this about God, we will never follow God gladly. We will never depend on him truly. We will never love him deeply. See, the enemy wants to flip the narrative. With Jesus, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. But that cross, James 4.14 calls this life a vapor. So we carry the cross for a moment of obedience to Jesus, being blessed along the way with intimacy with God and all sorts of common graces that he brings into our life. But we do carry a cross, but that cross fades. It's momentary. It's fleeting. The cross fades into eternal joy. That never, sin is broken, death is no more, no more tears, no more loss, no more heartache. The eternal reality of carrying a cross is that it turns into a crown, and the crown is eternal. When you carry the cross, you get the crown. The enemy wants to flip this on its head. The enemy's version is this. 
follow me, I'll give you pleasure. But the, the reality is when the enemy promises pleasure through disobedience, through walking away from the good shepherd, you get the crown of pleasure for a moment. You get the fleeting touch of, of pleasure or whatever it is. But the reality is that fades away to an eternity of suffering, of separation from God, of loss. The enemy wants to flip the narrative on us and tell us that he's offering life and God is offering, offering death, but nothing could be less true. The good shepherd always leads us to abundant life. The second thing I want us to see here, Lewis says that all this suffering is like foam on the seashore, meaning there's an ocean of bliss behind just the foam on the seashore of the pain that may come in this life from the obedience of following Christ. And he quotes Psalm 16, where King David writes, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I want to say this, this full joy, this, these pleasures forevermore, he's not talking about circumstantial happiness. The abundant life Jesus comes to give is deeper and bigger than our fleeting little desires that we want in this life. He's talking about something bigger. He's talking about internal, eternal realities that can never be touched. Let me put it this way. If you got everything you wanted in this life today, Will Smith, as the genie in Aladdin, pops up and says, what do you want? He grants all your wishes. You got the house on the hill, you got a house on the beach, you're rich, your family's healthy and happy, you can travel the world, you don't have to work, you can go tell your boss you're out of there tomorrow. All your dreams come true. Guess what? The simple ticking of the clock, tick, 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 second by second, is taking all of those things away from you eventually. We are guaranteed 100% in this room that everything we own aside from Jesus is going to be gone someday. So why Jesus referencing abundant life? How could he be talking about temporal blessings? Jesus did not come and die to give us more of what death is already guaranteed to take away. Jesus came to give us eternal life. Abundant life in its nature is eternal life. How can things we're guaranteed to lose be abundant? The imagery around abundant is my cup overflows. It's always full. Jesus, in talking about abundant life as the good shepherd and how he leads us to it, he's talking about knowing him, a relationship that begins now through the Holy Spirit living inside of you that grows in joy and purpose and meaning that suffering and death cannot touch, that ultimately blossoms into bloom when your heart stops beating and you're in glory with Jesus and you enter the true reward and the prelude ends and the concert starts. That's what Jesus came to give you, Christian. Way beyond a house, a car, happy kids, happy husband, happy wife, and three season passes to Disney. That's not what Jesus is talking about. So that begs the question, what about my suffering though? What about the hardships? What about the crosses? Does, does the good shepherd not care? Is he not invested in these burdens I'm walking under? Does eternity just wash away? Just get used to it. Get used to the hard stuff. Can't. What about these burdens? Will Jesus take them away? Will he fix them? I don't know. I know that he can, without a doubt. He's proven his power, and I pray that he will. But, but we can focus our heart on some promises in the midst of this. Let me give you just three promises the good shepherd has made to us. Number one, our suffering is achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs our suffering. 
2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Secondly, a second promise. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can endure in our struggles. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Promise number three, God has promised that if we seek his kingdom first, he will meet all of our needs, every last one. Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Trust Your Savior came to give you abundant life. The Good Shepherd leads us to abundant life. Verse 11. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So what makes Jesus the good shepherd according to this text? We've covered this that he lays down his life for the sheep, but why? Why does Jesus lay down his life for the sheep? There's an answer for us. See, he tells us that the hired hand runs away because the sheep are what? Not his own. He's not an owner of the sheep, but Jesus says, "I own my sheep. They are mine. I own them." If you're a believer in Christ, one of his sheep, he owns you. He has declared ownership in your life. Um, To help paint the picture a little better, let's look at the imagery. So I don't know if you have your PhD in in Near Eastern shepherding in Jesus' time or not. You can come up and preach this part if you want to. But I've done some research, and shepherding was a full-time job in Jesus' day. Get, Get like ranches in the middle of the Midwest United States out of your mind. These this is a different thing all together. The shepherd so closely knit his life to his sheep that he lived with them. He spent every waking moment with them. He cared for them. He provided for them. He led them. He protected them from wolves. He slept, as Matt shared last week, at the door of the gate at night. He never left the sheep. And not only that, but the sheep were literally the shepherd's livelihood. He didn't have a bank account. The sheep were his wealth. If he lost his sheep, if a wolf got his sheep, he's lost his wealth. And this is the kind of ownership Jesus is saying he has in us. See, there were, these shepherds would hire under shepherds. Back in the day, there was an owner of the sheep, but, you know, washing sheep's a hard gig. So you got to get some help. You hire some shepherds to help you. It's a full-time job. But Jesus says these shepherds are hirelings. They're hirelings. So what happens when the wolf comes? They don't own the sheep. Their livelihood's not threatened. They haven't loved and lived with the sheep, so they run. Why? Because they're there for the sheep to get something out of the sheep. They're with the sheep because the sheep can make them a quick buck. It's the old version of flipping burgers. It's just a job. They're just there because the sheep give them money. So they're not going to lay down their life. They're not going to attack a wolf for the sake of the sheep. They're going to jet. They're going to hop the fence and get out of there. Jesus is saying, I own my sheep. They're mine. I'm not going anywhere. I run head first at the sheep, at the wolf, snarling, bloody mouth, trying to get at my sheep. I will take it down because the sheep are my own. I'm not going anywhere. But we have to be careful here because the imagery here points that um, 
Jesus might need us. It's not that Jesus is dependent upon his sheep. We're not Jesus's livelihood. But what we need to see here is that Jesus has chosen to so closely identify and knit his heart to his flock that he considers it his joy to run towards us in our need, that he's not going anywhere, that he takes ownership. He's chosen to love us in that fashion. fashion. Let that reality melt your heart. This gets us into a, a doctrine called adoption. It's a, there's, there's all sorts of beautiful doctrines in the Bible, and adoption is possibly one of the most beautiful. It's a theological term for how God brings us into his family, how he takes us from the darkness and the rebellion of our sin and pulls us in away from that when we are estranged and he reconciles us through the blood of Christ and, and brings us into his family forevermore, never to be plucked from his hand. It's the doctrine of adoption. We are his own. J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Do you understand this morning, if you believe in Christ, if you come to God through faith in Christ, he's adopted you into his family. What does that mean? The London Baptist Confession of 1689 says this of adoption, describing what happens to us, what the Lord does in our lives and hearts and standing before him. It says, they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They have his name put on them. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. They are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They're pitied protected, provided for, and disciplined by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. When I read that out loud, do you believe that's you? If you've come to Christ through faith, is, do you believe, have you let your heart settle? Have you let that settle on your shoulders and your heart? Have you meditated on all these promises that God pities you in your hardships, that he provides for you, that he protects you in this life, that he disciplines you in love for your own good to lead you away from things that hurt you and pull you back to himself, his good, the good shepherd? Do you believe that nothing can pluck you out of his hand, that Philippians 1, 6, he who started a good work and you will be faithful to finish it? Do you believe all these promises? You're his sheep. He owns you. You're his child. What should that lead us to? That should lead us to glad surrender to the shepherd. Glad obedience. See, we love this imagery of a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Beautiful. But you know what being a sheep means? It means you're dependent. It means everything you have comes from him, that you can never walk away from him. It means that he provides for you. He takes care of you. He protects you. And so if you walk away from him, you put yourself in danger. Being a sheep means you choose to trust the shepherd, even when it's hard, even when external circumstances don't make sense. You trust the shepherd. You stay by his side. So some of this begs the question, how does all this work? And we'll, we'll close here. How do I know that Christ considers me his own? How do I know that I'm a sheep? How do I know? Let's look at verse 16. Verse 16. Before I read this, I just want to say, just maybe when Jesus is speaking these words, he literally had me and you in his mind's eye. Literally. 
verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this pen, not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So what's going on here? Remember our context. He's speaking to Pharisees. He's speaking to his disciples and he's speaking to a crowd of Jews watching. He tells them he's the good shepherd. And he says, listen, I'm speaking to you here and now. My sheep, the flock I came for, Israel. I'm your shepherd. I'm gonna unite you to myself. I'm gonna lead you out. I'm your good shepherd. But listen, there's other sheep that aren't here. Sheep not of this pen. And they will hear my voice. They will hear my call. They will hear me beckoning them. And they too will come to me. And then there will be one flock. The church, that's the church. There will be one flock. People from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, all over planet Earth throughout every generation will come into my care. The Gentiles, people far from God, not only the Jews, but everyone on Earth, welcome back into the fold of God through the grace I gave them if they will simply trust and believe that I am their shepherd. That's you, that's me. And what did Jesus do to make the sheep his own? How did he do it? How did he make a way for us to be a sheep? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's called the great exchange. It's called double imputation if you're a theologian. It's this, Jesus comes and lives a perfect life, flawless, just the life God wants him to live, the life we all failed to live. And then he's led as the perfect lamb to a cross by the hands of the people he came to save. He's nailed there. He dies grasping for oxygen. He bleeds out on the cross. And in that moment, God the Father turns his face away and pours out all of the evil, all of our vileness, all of our wickedness, all of our rejection and rebellion against him on Jesus, the perfect one. Jesus wears our sin. And God, in that same moment, takes all of, our, all of Jesus' perfectness, all of his righteousness, all of his obedience, his perfect record, and he pours it onto us and gives it to us so that when he looks at us, if we come to God through faith in Christ, he sees not our sin, he sees not our rebellion, he sees the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place, and he says, my sheep, mine, I delight in you because Christ paid for your sins. Not because you earned your way back to me, because I came for you. I'm the good shepherd. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Jesus is the good shepherd who gave his life for you, his sheep? He came to give you abundant life himself. Abundant life is Jesus. Abundant life is knowing Jesus. Abundant life is nearness to Jesus in whatever season you're in. Jesus is abundant life. Come to him as a sheep. Trust in his sacrifice on the cross and live in freedom. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this truth that you delight in us through Christ. Thank you for being our shepherd. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for protecting us. Thank you that when the wolf of our sin came for us, when the wolf of Satan accused us, you didn't run, you ran towards them and tackled them. You knocked their teeth out so that they can only gum us. Jesus, you are the conquering king that defeated sin. You are the good shepherd that brings us home and leads us to good pastoral. We trust in you. If there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that's estranged, that, that you're calling now saying, 
You're one of my sheep from another fold. I'm calling you home. Would we hear your voice now? Would we hear your voice now beckoning us back towards life? If that's you, would you just look at me right now if you're saying, I've never heard the voice of the shepherd before, but I'm hearing it right now. Just look at me. Anyone else? Anyone else? Awesome. Anyone else? Anyone else? If you don't, I see a lot, but if you don't see me, myself and Pastor Matt, if he hears me, we're going to be down front after the service. Just come talk to us. We want to take a moment to pray with you. This is important. Please, the shepherd is calling you. He's saying you're my sheep. Don't let the emotion fading chase you off. Come find us. There is life abundant to be offered to you. Let me pray. Jesus, we trust in you. You are the shepherd. Have your way in this place. It's in your name.